Thanks for listening to the Theology for the Rest of Us podcast by J.R. Foresteros. This is a class I taught at Beaver Creek Church of the Nazarene, so from time to time you'll hear questions being asked by the class. I do my best to repeat them so that you won't be lost as you listen. You can find more of my podcasts at my website, jrforesteros.com, and at storyman.us, where I co-host with Matt Michelados and Clay Morgan. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the class. This is going to be uh, the last week of, well, that's not, I was going to say the last week of new content, that's not technically true. This is the last week where we're going to be doing major pieces of work in specific areas of theology. We've as I'm sure you've noticed, we've been following what, uh, what is called narrative theology, where we're basically trying to move through the Bible, and assuming all things go according to plan, we're going to get to the end tonight. And so uh, next week, we're not going to have class, because I, back in June, scheduled something, not thinking ahead that Wednesday nights in the fall are bad for me. And, uh, and then a week, so a week after next week, in two weeks, we'll do one final week of class, and that will be sort of the... So what week, where we go back to some of the conversations we began with about, uh, you know, sort of everyone being a theologian and how do we do good theology and those kinds of things. Uh, That's when we'll go through the theological family tree and we'll kind of do a very brief overview of church history and who came from where and who's, you know, theologically related to who else and where do Nazarenes come into all of that. And you'll get to see me try to draw a bad tree. Uh, And then we'll also do... Uh, I, I thought it would be really interesting next time to end everything with a couple of some of the big theological conversations that are happening inside the church right now uh, and kind of tell you, you know, if, you, if, you, if you've been around, like here are, here are some big questions that the church, either our particular Nazarene denomination or even the whole, you know, worldwide church is asking today. And also, if we have time, a couple of questions that our culture is talking about, you know, because again, we said everyone does theology, not just Christians. Everyone's talking about God. And so what kinds of questions are people outside of the church asking about God? And how does everything we've been doing in this class relate to those questions? And how can, how can we begin to formulate some good answers? So I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, and by fun, I mean, hopefully, at least fun for me. Probably fun for you, too, if you've stuck with it this long. So uh, tonight we're going, to, we're going to kind of dovetail into our discussion last week that we ended with talking about who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit does in our lives Uh, begin with the church, and then we'll get into the theology of last things, which is where does all this stuff wrap up? And I'm going to go ahead and brace you for disappointment. We don't know very much. So uh, be prepared to be let down. No, I'm just kidding. We'll have fun. Uh, So uh, let's go ahead and review where we have been. Uh, We started out by talking about what what we call the Wesleyan quadrilateral, which is a sort of a four-part guide to help us do theology, or four sources of how we do theology. The, the most important one, of course, is the scriptures. Uh, we, we draw our theological inspiration and guidance from the scriptures. We also do from our church tradition, which is both the 100-year-ish Nazarene church tradition, but then also the larger 2,000-year tradition of the whole universal worldwide church. Uh, we also draw from reason, our own ability to think and make sense of the world and look at things and say, oh, that doesn't fit with that, you know, or that does fit really well with that, makes sense. And then also finally from our experiences, our experiences of God, our experiences with each other, our experiences of church and the church and all that kind of stuff. So uh, when we use all four of those together, they they kind of provide a, a boundary for our theology. They help us do good theology and think through things clearly and have clear discussions with each other. Uh, 
they don't always answer the questions the way we'd like them to, particularly in the Nazarene Church, and we'll talk more about this next week, but there are some whole areas of theology where we've intentionally been pretty vague or had a pretty big kind of box of what's allowed to be believed, and, and that's on purpose. And in other places, we, we don't do that so much, but uh, that's because some things we think are really important, and some things we say, well, the scriptures aren't super clear on those things, and so rather than make clear what the scriptures didn't make clear, we'll just settle for, you know, be somewhere inside this box. So... Uh, so we began then talking about theology in particular with a discussion of who God is. Um, it's always good to begin a, the- a discussion of words about God with God. And so we said God is Trinity. God is a single being who exists as three persons who are all co-equal, co-eternal, uh, and that they exist in this uh, loving relationship inside of, of, that, of that one person. And it's out of that overabundance of love that God creates. Uh, and so we got into talking about creation, and we, we really use this idea of the, the house and how in the ancient world everything revolved around the father and the house. And that's how they pictured not only their king, and their king was the, you know, kind of the father of the nation, and the nation was his house, but then that's also how they looked at God. God created the world as sort of a cosmic temple, a cosmic house that he ruled from. And the original purpose of creation was that God would have images of himself in creation, which would be us, and that we would live in God's world on God's terms and live in creation with God. And that, that, was, that was how everything was originally set up. So at the time we get to the end of Genesis chapter 2, that's what we have. We have the man and the woman living in creation, ruling over creation, under God's authority, but over creation as images of God. Um, and, uh, and then, of course, everything went terribly wrong. And so... We got to, that was where we, uh, this, this era isn't dramatically down enough, but that was sort of supposed to be the fall, right? We essentially chose not to live in God's world on God's terms. We chose to try to do things our own way, to be the gods of our own world, to set our own rules, to you know, kind of think that way. And God entered into history in the form of covenants. Uh, he, he kept coming to us over and over and over and making covenants with us and calling us back to who we were created to be. And we kept refusing to do that. So first with Noah, then with Abraham, then with Moses, and finally with David. And at each turn along the way, God kept calling us to be more than we were, and, and we, kept, uh, we kept refusing that. So wrapped up in the idea of covenant were two ideas, the Torah and the tabernacle or the, or the temple. Right? The Torah is that record of God's way. How do we live in God's world on God's terms? And the way that people were created to live in God's world on God's terms, the scripture is called the Torah. It's our way. Uh, And then the other thing is the temple or the tabernacle, they're the same building uh, functionally, right? And the temple or the tabernacle represented creation. It was sort of like since we lost the big version, since we messed everything up on the macro scale, this is a micro version of that where everything, everything really symbolically was tied to creation and it was how we could still sort of live with God on God's terms in God's world. But of course it wasn't perfect. It was, a, it was obviously if you compare the temple to the whole of creation, the whole of the, the cosmos, there's, there's a lot lacking there. But it was a, it was a step in the right direction. Uh, for God's people, that all ended up, that ended in exile. We spent, a, we probably should have spent more time in exile. But, you know, the, the idea that God finally left us, abandoned the covenant that we broke over and over and over again, and gave us over to what we wanted, which was to be in a world without God. Israel was conquered. Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. 
Uh, and then from that point forward, Israel really never got back to where they were really truly living as God's people in God's world, in their land. They were either ruled by false kings who were not of the line of David, uh, you know, they had, or they didn't have a temple, or they were being ruled by some empire, you know, the, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Romans, everyone kind of had a turn at that. And so into all of that was where Jesus entered into the story, right? Jesus comes in, he's born in uh, he's born in Israel to a people who are still sort of living in an exile because they're not ruling themselves. Uh, there's all these hopes that one day a true son of David, a true king, will come and free them. And Jesus is that king. But the, the great, kind of the really cool part about that is he's not just a son of David who's born. He is also God incarnate. He is the eternal, uncreated word of God become flesh. And so Jesus, Jesus' death and resurrection is what actually begins the process of recreation, okay? Not just trying to patch up the old broken creation, right? Not just putting like a bandaid on a broken leg, so to speak, but actually completely recreating everything. His resurrection was the first, it happened on a Sunday, the first day of the week, and then thematically, symbolically, the Christians understood that to be the first day of a new creation week. And so from Jesus' death and resurrection forward, there are now two realities that humanity can exist in. Uh, and Paul calls one in, one in Christ, and one in Adam, right? In Adam is obviously the old, broken creation, the one that's fallen, the one that's leading to death. And in Christ is the one where you have experienced Jesus' resurrection, you've said yes to his rescue, and you are now um, beginning to live in this new creation that God is bringing about. But where we are right now is in between these two realities. The old creation that began to die in Genesis 3 is still passing away. That's the, the language of scripture, right? It's on its way out. And the new creation that began at Jesus' resurrection is on its way in. It's, it's coming about. And so uh, the, the, the scriptures understand that we are in the middle of a new creation, right? And that the, the Holy Spirit is the, the person of God who is living and active in the world today, bringing about this new creation, specifically in us. The Holy Spirit is the one who enables us to receive Jesus' rescue, the Holy Spirit is the one who not only rescues us from sin, but we talked about this at the very end a couple weeks ago. He also rescues us for Jesus. So not only can we be with God, but we can become like God. And that's a process called sanctification, which is a fancy word. It means holification, right? Which basically just means we become like God. We become holy the way God is holy. We become essentially what, what's really happening is we're becoming who we were originally created to be. And so through the Holy Spirit, we begin, we begin to live in this new reality that's here yet, but it's not fully here yet. It's kind of on its way in. And the Holy, we talked about the Holy Spirit as sort of a, a sneak preview of the resurrected life. Okay. And that's everything we did so far. That was the first seven weeks. All of that moderately clear? Okay. Sound somewhat familiar? Good. All right. Well, then let's talk about... Um, what, when, we, when we talk about who the Spirit is and what the Spirit does in our life, we're not only talking about it on an individual level, which is what we did last time, but we're also talking about it on a corporate level because, as you know, since you're sitting in this room, Christians don't just live uh, a Christian life on your own. You get together with other groups of other Christians, right? You form, we form groups, and we do stuff together. Uh, and we call that group of people that has come together the church. And so uh, I want to talk briefly tonight about what the church is. What is this group? What is this, in, this entity that the, the Spirit brings together? And there are two 
major metaphors that I found particularly helpful for understanding what the church is. Uh, the first is the assembly. Now, uh, I gave you a scripture in Matthew 16. This is just after Jesus has essentially been uh, finding out what the word on the street about him is. He's like, who, you know, who are people saying? What's the buzz? What, what are people saying? And, and his disciples are like, well, some people think you're this guy. Some people think you're that. Some people, you know, and then he turns and asks them, now, who do you think that I am? And up until this point, see, it's obvious for us. We're like, well, we know that you're God because we have the whole Bible, right? But for them, they only knew that Jesus was this guy that was a teacher, a rabbi, and he had invited them to follow him. And so they did, and they follow him around, and the more time they spend with him, the more they're like, okay, this guy isn't just, he's not like a, some run-of-the-mill rabbi. There's a lot more going on here than meets the eye. And up until this point in the Gospels and the, these you know, stories that we have about Jesus, uh, there has not been uh, any clear indication from them that they actually really understand what's going on. Okay? In fact, the only, the, only, the only people, the only entities that have identified Jesus as the Messiah are demons that he's casting out of people. He'll go up to someone who's demon-possessed, and they'll say, we know who you are. You're the Son of God. You're the Messiah. Now, you can all imagine, right? If someone in here came in here and was demon-possessed and started telling us who people were, we'd be like, that's not the most reliable source of information. <laughs> you know, so you can understand why, even though some people had been identifying Jesus as the Messiah, the disciples may not have caught on yet, but the more they start putting the piece together, I'm like, maybe those demons are onto something. I don't know. Um, and so Jesus says, well, who do you guys think I am? You know, okay, we, we know what the buzz is. Who do you think I am? And then Simon Peter is the one who says, you're, you're the Messiah. And so this is what Jesus says in response to Peter getting the right answer. He says, you are blessed, Simon of John, Simon, son of John, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church. And all the powers of hell will not conquer it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. And whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Now, the word that Jesus uses there in the Greek is the word ekklesia. Okay? And it's a word that, so we see, he, says, he says, you're Peter, and on this rock I'm going to build my ekklesia. Okay? Now, we obviously don't know what that word means, but if you were a Greek person reading this text, you would have known that an ekklesia, is a, it, it literally means the people who are called out, or the called out ones, or the group that's called out. And it literally refers to any group of people who were called together around a particular purpose. Or for, or for some reason. So it was used of like public assemblies. It was used, uh, I, think, I think the best example I've ever been able to think of of what an ecclesia was is like a PTA or a, they, I think we call them PTOs in Ohio, right? Parent-teacher organization. Because think about it this way, okay? Where the PTA or the PTO meets is not important, right? I mean, they're pro probably they're going to meet in the school gym, okay? Probably. But they really could meet pretty much anywhere and they'd still be a PTO, Right? I mean, as long as, as long as they're doing PTO business. In fact, they might even have little subcommittees break up, and they're not going to meet in the gym. They're going to meet at, like, Red Robin or something like that or at someone's house. And they're still doing the business of the PTO. The decisions they're making are still affecting the whole organization. So there's still, like, a meaningful way in which you're saying, well, yeah, they weren't in the gym, but they're definitely, you know, they're definitely still the PTO. And then, two, it also does um, – who, who the individuals are isn't even the full story. Because that whole group of people might all be, let's say, at the Friday night football game, right? But they're not there to do PTO stuff. They're there to cheer on their football team. Or they might even be in the gym where they usually meet as a PTO, but they're there for a basketball game or something like that. And so everything about it is the same except what they're doing. And it's really not until they're gathered together 
to do the business of the PTO that they're really in a meaningful sense the PTO, right? I mean, does that make sense? Because what makes them what makes them an identifiable group is not that the, the not the space they meet in, and not even who the individuals are. It's when they all come together to do what they work, what they came together to do, and that's that's what the word ecclesia implies, right? Is that there's a, it's this group of people that has a particular purpose or a particular mission, and so it's when these people get together to do their business that they're that ecclesia, and Jesus chose that word to describe th this thing, okay? Now, a lot of times it's easy for us to think that the church is a building, right? We even say this, we, we're going to church, or I missed church, or something like that. But maybe it's easier, a little bit easier for our particular congregation, because we know there's people in and out of this building all week long that are not a part of our congregation, they're not a part of our church, they're not a part of our ecclesia, they're just using this building, Right, and so it's. I mean, we we have a we have a sense that it, well, it's not the building that makes you a church, and that's even why I put a question uh, in in your notes tonight. You know, how, how many times a week do you do, do you go to church, right? Because I th I have a feeling that most of us, because I was trying to be tricky, most of us probably thought, well, maybe once a week Sundays, right, or maybe twice a week Sundays and Wednesdays if you counted this. But I really wonder how many times a week do you meet with other people who are followers of Jesus, and how many times do you guys do the business of the kingdom of God, you know, whether that's meeting with someone for prayer or uh, getting together with someone like a small group or something like that, um, even meeting over, I don't know, coffee or something like that, because in, uh, in the New Testament, I think I gave you, uh, did I? No, I didn't put it in there. Okay, I meant to. There's another verse later in Matthew 18 uh, where Jesus says, wherever two or more people have gathered in my name, I'm with them. And there's this idea that, that really what it means to do church is when you meet with other people who are also called by Jesus, who have also experienced the same kind of a story, who are living in this tension between the old world is passing away and the new world is coming into existence, who are empowered by the Holy Spirit. And then when you guys are doing the work of the church, that, that can be church. And, and it's helpful for us to think of church in that way. Uh, it, it makes it, I think it makes it more immediate for us. Church isn't a thing that I go to and participate in to some degree or not. Church is, is who I am. And I have the opportunity to do church, to be church, a lot more often than maybe most of us think about it. So it can be, it can be a, a good, challenging kind of a thing. Uh, okay, so that's, that's the idea of the assembly. Is that clear? Any questions about that? All right. The other major metaphor that gets used in the scriptures that I, I think is really helpful is the, is the body. Now, 1 Corinthians 12 is where Paul, Paul's the one who uses this metaphor a lot, and he uses it to great effect. He uses it in several of his letters. But Paul says, 1 Corinthians 12, the, body, the human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body, so it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some of us are Gentiles, some of us are slaves, some of us are free, but we have all been baptized into one body by one spirit, and we all share the same spirit. So there again, you hear in Paul's language that it is the Holy Spirit who constitutes our body. He's the, 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 what holds us all together, the, you know, the tendons and the muscle, I don't know, whatever holds bodies together. I'm not, not a biologist. Uh, so um, the spirit is the one who constitutes us. And if you read through, uh, it'd be good for you to read through 1 Corinthians 12 over the next couple weeks. He goes into all kinds of, you know, the hand can't say, oh, I don't need the rest of the body because yes, the hand actually does need the rest of the body. And the eye can't say, well, I'm not a foot, so I don't matter. No, I, like every, every part has a specific function and a specific role. And they all have to be functioning together for the body to be a whole healthy body. And that's how it is with the church. 
now I want to come back to this idea of the different parts of the body in a minute when we talk about spiritual gifts. But first, I want to talk more largely about what uh, conceptually what Paul is saying when he says that the church is the body. Later, he says that we're the, you know, the body of, of Jesus. And so uh, in 1 Corinthians six nineteen, this is a, a verse that some of you, if you've been around the church very long, have probably heard before. Since I have tattoos, I've heard it a lot. Uh, and this is what he says. Uh, this, now, this is a little bit earlier in 1 Corinthians, right? But he says this. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and who was given to you by God? Okay. Now, what I grew up hearing, I grew up in the church, so I grew up hearing this, and I, what I would suspect any of you who are familiar with this verse have heard before is my individual body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and your individual body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and your body and your body. And so we're, there's like, you know, 20 of us temples of the Holy Spirit who are all sitting in here being temples of the Holy Spirit. And then you get into all kinds of discussions about, you know, is tattooing graffiti or is it painting? And, you know, uh, uh, that's why I said I heard, I've heard it a lot. Or Again, you get into it with, like, uh, fitness and drug use and all different things that affect your individual body. That's what this verse gets used to talk about. What's interesting, though, and, and, and this, as far as I could tell, this is a unique a problem uniquely for those of us who are English speakers. Because most other languages, and any of you who know more than one language have probably had experience with this, have two versions of the you pronoun. They have a you singular and a you plural. And so you can tell when someone is speaking, whether they're speaking, when they say you, you know, to one person or to multiple people, right? I can say like, you know, hey, Steve, do you want to go to Rev. Robert and grab a burger with me later? And you, because you, I said his name and pointed at him and look, you know that I'm talking to him. And I'm like, you want to go get a burger with me at Rev. Robin after? You'd say, I think he's talking to all of us because he, you know, made his arms big and just kept looking around, you know. And you can't tell just from the sense. If I'd written it on the board, you'd be like, right? Now, in most other languages, there are two there, you know, there's a singular form of you and a plural form of you. Um, there is a part of the country that does have an English plural, right? In the South, they have y'all. So you know if someone is talking to you or y'all, whether it's singular or plural, right? But for, for formal English, anyway, we don't have that. Now, here's why that matters, and I put it on your page so you could kind of see this. In this particular verse, the you is plural, but the word body is still singular. Okay, so he says, don't you know that y'all's body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Now, if he had meant that we're all a bunch, like 20 or so individual temples, he would have said, don't you know that your singular body singular, or y'all's bodies, right? But what he's saying is not that all of our individual bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, but he's saying the body of Christ is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And each of us is a part of that body. And so if you go and read 1 Corinthians 6, the larger conversation he's having is about in Corinth and some of the pagan cults, they had temple prostitutes. And so some of the Corinthian Christians were still going and having sex with some of the temple prostitutes because that was part of their you know, pagan religious traditions. And Paul says, here's what you don't understand, guys. Like you're, in, you're individual, like you're a, you know, a hand or a foot or whatever individual part of the body you are, you're part of this larger temple, this larger body. And so when you, as an individual, go and have sexual relations with a prostitute, you're actually bringing the whole body into that relationship. And that's not okay. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, not, it's not good for Christ to be united with a prostitute. 
right? And so uh, that's what's going on there. But here's, here's why I wanted to bring this to you. This is new creation language, okay? Creation, if you remember, was a cosmic temple in which God wanted to dwell with his people. And then even after the fall, God commanded his people to build a physical temple, a, a micro-representation of the creation, so that he could dwell with his people. And then when Jesus came, he made all these weird statements like people would, like he said, you know, well, that temple is going to be destroyed. Uh, and then, and then he, they would comment like, oh, you, are, you are you threatening to blow up the temple or what's going on? And he would say, well, you tear this temple down and in three days I'll build it up again. And then people were confused because they're like, took him like 50 years to build that temple and how are you going to build it in three days? And then the editor comes in and says, no, no, he's talking about the temple of his body. And so Jesus, what Jesus was saying, you find this particularly in the Gospel of John, was that the, the temple or the creation or whatever, the temple represents where heaven and earth come together, right? Where God and his people dwell together. And because Jesus is fully human and fully God, he's a living, breathing, walking temple. He is where heaven and earth come together. He is the site where God and humanity dwell perfectly together. And now Paul is opening that up and saying, if the church is the body of Christ then the church is the space where heaven and earth come together. The church is the space where people experience the presence of God. The church is the space where uh, this new humanity is on display. So the church is, in an important and in a meaningful sense, the temple of God. Does that make sense? Okay. So... uh, I want to make one comment on the word liturgy because this is what now what we're talking about is what we do when we get together. You know, if the, if the church is the people of God, if we're the temple of God, obviously one of the main things the churches do is worship, right? That's the main function that happened at the temple. And that's the main thing that we do. In, in I mean, if you ask most people what do churches do, they're like, well, they they probably like they pray or read their Bibles or sing song. You know, they probably pretty quickly get to the Sunday morning experience that we have. We call it worship or something like that. Uh, the the word that the technical word for that that you get uh, is is liturgy. I'm sure most of you probably heard this term before. No. You haven't heard it, but it's okay. No. It's a technical term. It means it mean, when you hear the word liturgy, it basically means like the worship that's going on, the kind of the, the order of worship or whatever. That and, and it's it's essentially it's the earliest word that we can find that the early Christians used to describe what they were doing. So after Jesus is raised from the dead. And he ascends to the throne of heaven and the Holy Spirit comes and empowers the church. And they start getting together and celebrating all of this and worshiping God, worshiping the Trinity. They decided they needed a word to call what they were doing. Right? What, I mean, you can imagine that, right? What are we doing here? We're not meeting in the synagogue anymore and we're not doing what we did in the synagogue. We're not going to the temple anymore. And so they, they're doing something else. They're getting together and they're singing songs together and they're reading scripture together and they're praying together and doing all these things. And they need something to call it, just like we do, right? We call it a worship service, okay? They needed something to call it. And the word that they chose was the word liturgos, which is our liturgy, right? It's just the Greek form of that word. And that word means work of the people. Work of the people. And it was used, it's so fascinating. It was used to describe anything that was done for the benefit of the whole city. So wealthy, patri- wealthy citizens would, like, pay for a new road. You know, the government was strapped, and they didn't have enough cash to do a road improvement project, so some really wealthy citizen would just pay for a road. 
They'd probably get a nice plaque or something like that, right, on the road, or have it named after them or something, right? But they would build a road, and it was for everyone to use. Right? It wasn't their private road. It was for everyone. Or, uh, you know, everyone likes a good set of entertainment, right? So they would uh, pay for a set of athletic games. They would just sponsor the whole thing and pay the athletes and pay for the whole event to go on and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And this wealthy individual citizen would pay for these games, and then they were free and open to the public, and everyone could come, and it was for the whole city. And something like that was called a litergos. They say, oh, that's a work of, that's a work of the people. Something that's done by a, an individual or a small group of people that's for the benefit of the whole town. Okay? And when the early Christians were getting together to celebrate Jesus' resurrection and to worship the Trinity, they could have chosen almost any word, like a celebration or worship, for instance. They could have chosen any word to, talk, to describe what they were doing. And they chose liturgos. They said this small, I remember, they're meeting in homes and stuff like that. She's talking about, you know, maybe 15 to 20 people at a big one, right? They're getting together and they're doing these things. They're saying this, this small group of people is coming together and we're doing this stuff and we're going to call it a liturgos because we believe that this is for the benefit of the whole town or the whole creation, all of humanity. What we're doing here, this, this worshiping of the Trinity, this, this living out this new humanity, this is, this is for everyone. It's not just for us. It's for everyone. Um, that's why I think it's funny, and by funny I mean bad, uh, <laughs> that we call our worship thing that we do a service. Because I think it creates a really uh, toxic mindset in us. When it's a service, it's for me. I come to get serviced, right? And then what's mostly important is that I've, I'm happy about it, that I met, uh, that it fed me. We've all heard these things, right? Uh, maybe, or maybe you're just getting my pastoral baggage. It fed me, or I liked the music, or I didn't like the music. But it seems like, you know, when, when we call it a service, what's most important is that I was served by it, right? Because it's for me. And the earliest Christians did not think that way. They said, what, we're, what, what, I, what I'm coming here to do is for, for everyone. It's for the good of, of everyone else. And so what, 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 matter, what is going to be important is whether this is something that is, is connecting people who are far from God with God. Whether, I am, whether this is telling people who don't know the good news about Jesus. It's a liturgos. It's not for me. It's for everyone else. So I don't know. I don't know what other word we could use, but... Is that word used in Christian? Uh, I'll have to go look and find it. There are the word worship that's most often used is a word that literally means to lay down on your face, and so it's a word that like when you went in front of a king, you would you know you would lay down on your face and as a as sort of an act of homage or something like that. Yeah, the 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 tricky part is, uh, I guess until you get into the epistles, you don't really have. I mean, in G, you know when Jesus was on the earth doing ministry, he was he wasn't conducting worship services or worship gatherings or liturgos or whatever. Uh, so it's something that we find pretty early in the church's history, but I'm not, I'll have to look and see if that is something that's in the New Testament or not. So, okay, so, good. Any other questions about liturgy or about the body? Well, we're going to do more of the body. Okay, so here's a question I want to ask. If, if liturgy, if our Sunday experience, if our worship, whatever we want to call it, if that's about how we worship the Trinity, then what does it look like to love each other Right? How, how are we supposed to do that? And this is where spiritual gifts come in. Uh, 
So I want to read for you 1 Corinthians. This is more from 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, This is 4 through 11. And again, there are several places in the scriptures that spiritual gifts are talked about. Uh, We're just going to look at one, but there there are several. And this is all coming from the first followers of Jesus getting together, having these worship experiences, uh, trying to figure out this new life with Jesus, right? And having some pretty dramatic and interesting experiences within their little, what we would call congregations, but they're little house churches, right? There's like, again, 10, 15, 20 people getting together regularly, maybe even daily sometimes. And so here's what Paul says. He says, now there are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same spirit is the source of them all. God works in different ways, but is the same God who does the work in all of us. A spiritual gift is given to each of us so that we can help each other. To one person, the spirit gives the ability to give wise advice. To another, the same spirit gives a message of special knowledge. That same spirit gives great faith to another. And to someone else, one, uh, the one spirit gives the gift of healing. He gives one person the ability to perform miracles and another the ability to prophesy. He gives someone else the ability to discern whether a message is from the spirit of God or from another spirit. Still, another person is given the ability to speak in unknown languages, while another is given the ability to interpret what is being said. It is the one and only spirit who distributes all of these gifts. He alone decides which gift each person should have. Okay, so there's Paul talking about the spiritual gifts. What are they? Well, they are these abilities that the spirit gives individual believers to enable ministry in the body. Okay? Um, and there's, there's, I just, there's tons of them. Now, there's a lot of debate about whether... There's a, uh, what the differences are between like a gift the spirit gives versus a talent someone's always had versus like a passion maybe that they have and stuff like that. I have personally found those debates to be uh, tedious probably is the right word. I think that, I think that to belabor that can sometimes miss the point. I think that what really matters is if someone is actively trying to serve other people uh, or not. And if you're doing that and if you're ministering, if you're if you're really giving of yourself to the people in your congregation, I'm not that worried about whether it's a gift or a talent or a passion or whatever. Uh, and I, in my, in my experience, going back to one of the four pegs of that quadrilateral, the line is pretty hazy. Uh, and I don't, I haven't found a lot of, uh, I haven't found a lot of benefit in teasing out the differences. Uh, now some people have written whole books on it. Obviously they cared about it a lot more than I did. Uh, great i guess like if again if it helps them do better ministry awesome um but i found a lot of people who get so caught up in trying to identify exactly what their gift is before they get serving that they never actually start serving and i would i would say this is also my personality i'm a ready fire aim kind of person so i would also say just just go start serving and and you'll figure it out eventually right just just go start doing something i know not all of us are wired that way so what's important about the gifts uh and again this was this was actually what was going on in Corinth that occasioned Paul to write about this is that, in, again, you can imagine these little groups of 10 or 15 or 20 people, people were standing up and using their gifts and drawing attention to themselves. And they were arguing about which gift was the best gift and, and, and just going back and forth about all of it and, and using them to puff themselves up rather than to serve other people. And Paul says, no, 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 no. What matters is that your get, the Spirit gives you gifts to help the other people in your congregation. The Spirit gives you gifts to help the other people in your church. And so if you have a gift, it's not to puff yourself up. It's not to show off. It's not to, to, be, you know, to be better than everyone else. 
Because again, if you go back to the, and this is why, this is why he actually transitions from this discussion into, into the body discussion that we read earlier. He's like, think about it like a body, you know? You might think your hand is pretty awesome, but if you didn't have an eye or a tongue or a mouth or a foot, like your hand would be less awesome. You know, it could get less things done in a day. Every part of the body needs every other part of the body. And that's how it is with our gifts. Just because someone else doesn't have a gift that you have doesn't mean that they're any less important or less valuable than you are. And vice versa, if you are looking at someone else's gifts and saying, man, that must be nice, uh, that doesn't mean that you are any less important or less valuable to the body. Uh, so every God, and, and it, the most important thing is it comes to the end of it, he says the spirit is the one who gives everyone gifts according to their needs, according to the needs of the church, and that's what matters. So don't, again, don't get so, don't get so caught up in comparing and contrasting and saying I'm better than you and this and you and that, and, uh, and just just serve, just go, just do. Um, and the now again, when you talk about spiritual gifts, a lot of people want to want to spend some time on the more dramatic ones, things like tongues or healing or different stuff like that. Um, where Paul, where Paul is really coming down is that the spiritual gifts are meant to promote order in the body of Christ, not chaos. And so, what again, the sense that you get from some of his discussion a little bit later in Corinthians is that. People were exercising their gifts out of turn, and they were kind of all speak again, just all trying to be the most important, the most popular, right? And Paul's like, y'all need to calm down. Uh, what the Spirit desires in your church is not chaos, is not everyone jockeying for position and trying to be better than everyone else, right? It's, it's order and it's love. And this is why the famous 1 Corinthians 13 comes at the very end of this chapter. He's going on, and you just get the sense that there's all of this. Mine's better, and whose is better? And Paul, can you rank the gifts for us and tell us, is, you know, is prophecy better than tongues or not? And it's, you know, uh, and then Paul says, well, above all of these things, you should put on love. And that's how we go, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not, and he, he goes, we've all been to wedding, right? So, um, but that, that's what he's talking about. He, sa he says that ultimately love, which takes us back to the doctrine of the Trinity, right? Love is the undergirding attribute under all of these gifts that always 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 what your first question should be is not do i have this gift so therefore should i be using it it's how can i love the people in my congregation better how can i give myself for them how can i give what i have to help them succeed to help them flourish to help them be better right that's that's the most important and Paul says, if you're asking that question, then this whole discussion about whose gift is what and whose is better and all, it kind of fades to the background because that's all of a sudden not the most important thing. So a couple of things about gifts, and then I'll uh, take some questions. Uh, first of all, we all have gifts, and they all matter to our body, to the body here at Beaver Creek Church in Nazareth. Okay? All of us have gifts. The Spirit has given all of us gifts, and, and, and they're all important for us here. There's, there's no appendix on the body of Christ, right? Okay. Because you don't need an appendix. We got, okay. No? All right. Uh, two, my personal opinion, uh, lists are overrated. Okay? We don't have any indication that Paul meant any of his lists of spiritual gifts in the Scriptures to be exhaustive. And again, I think I see I see a lot of energy being spent on creating a list and figuring it out, and then you make an inventory and you kind of pick off the list which one you think you have. And, you know, and there's just a lot of, now. I will qualify that by saying if you are just like totally lost when it comes to trying to figure out what your spiritual gifts might be, those can be a really helpful guide to get you started. And if you want to find one, go to the Google, type in spiritual gifts inventory. You'll find a hundred of them. Maybe take like two or three and 
see, you know, you'll you'll be able to tell if they're shady or if they're good. Um, but but don't don't like get that engraved in an ID bracelet and wear it and say this is this is it. I found it. Like don't do that because um, what you're going to find is that you're the more you get involved in ministry, the more you're serving in some way, that's when you're really going to figure out your gifts. The best piece of advice anyone ever gave me about identifying my own spiritual gifts was ask the people that you're in community with. Because again, if your spiritual gift is really the thing that the Spirit gives me to help all of you, right, because you're my church, then the best way for me to figure out what mine are is for me to say, you know, hey, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm really trying to figure out my spiritual gifts. I'm trying to discern where God might be wanting me to work. Uh, what have you, how have you seen God use me? You know, and, and not, obviously not coming at that from a place of arrogance, right? It'd be like, I just need to pick me up. Can you tell me how I'm awesome, you know, today? Not, not something like that, right? But just saying, I'm real, I, this, is, this is something I'm trying to do, and I'm inviting you into this journey. I'm inviting you to kind of identify some places in my life that you've seen God work, that you've experienced God's encouragement and edification through me. Can you just tell me something? And then listen, ask three or four people, and you'll find that they're all kind of saying the same thing. They might be saying it with different words, right? But you'll be, you'll be quickly identifying a couple of different ways that God is really using you. And usually, in my experience, it's pretty surprising. Because the thing is, when you're gifted at something, you don't really realize that you do it really well. You just kind of think like every, this is maybe our, our own low estimations of ourselves, right? But when you're really good at something, you don't realize that you're really good at it a lot of the time. You're just like, well, yeah, I, just, I mean, everyone can do this, right? And everyone else is going like, no way, like, you're so good at that. Oh my gosh. Like, wow. I'm just totally amazed at how well you connect with people that you don't know. You know, I meet a new person and I'm like, oh, new people, I'm going to go hide, you know, but you just go right in there and you, you can make friends with, you know, a rock. Like, it's amazing. You're like, oh, I just kind of thought everyone could go chat with people they didn't know. I, I didn't realize everyone was, you know, or, man, you are such an incredible uh, prayer. You know, when I, when I hear you pray, like, it just seems to, it seems so much more profound and deep. And I, like, I really have learned a lot about how to pray from listening to you pray and from praying with you. And you're like, oh, I, oh, I, didn't, I didn't realize that, like, I just kind of pray, you know, it's what I do. Uh, and so, I'm t- like, when you, if you really approach it from that perspective, when you really kind of start asking people to help you see those things, people that know you, people that you do life with, you're in community with, you'll be surprised often at some of the, the ways that the Spirit has gifted you and is using you. And then once you've identified those things, you can lean into them, right? You can say, oh, well, four different people have told me that I'm really good at connecting with people that I don't know. Maybe, you know, maybe I should think about being a greeter or something like that. Maybe I should put myself in more situations where I'm meeting people that I don't know. Because this is a way that God has uniquely gifted me. You know, and I can be a, I can be the sort of the front door to the church. Maybe that's, you know, maybe I'm the mouth on the body of Christ or the hand, the firm handshake on the body of Christ or whatever. I don't know, right? But uh, when, once you begin to see these things about yourself, you can intentionally try to understand where God is wanting you to serve. And, you know, the other thing I tell people all the time is don't be afraid to make a mistake, right? Don't be afraid to say, well, I think this was it, um, at least at this church. I don't know how it is at other churches, but um, Keevan will back me up. We don't, like, make you sign a five-year contract when you want to serve somewhere, right? If you're like, well, I think I think I want to do this, but I'm not sure. Like, we're like, well, prick your finger, sign in blood, and we'll go ahead and file this away and, you know, um, put, a, put a car outside your house. And, you know, we don't, like, that's not how it is. You know, you can... Try something out for six months, see if, and you'll know, you will know if it's where you're supposed to be serving or not. And if it's not, go do something else. 
right? And just figure it out. It's, it's a journey. It's a process. And the only, the, only way, the only way you figure it out is by doing it. You know, go, go, do, figure out, you know. You're sensing the theme, hopefully, by now. I think they can. Um, yeah, I absolutely think they can change, grow, or, you know, I, I, I think that if you were to move to a new location, new church, new body, something like that, there, it's entirely possible that this particular body needs different things, and it's within the Spirit's right and ability to gift you with a different gift and, you know, have you, have you doing something. You know, again, I'm not, there are some people that say you get one gift and you have it for life and you better figure it out. And I, I, I'm like, well, I, I, again, I, I, maybe, but I know in my, own, like in my own particular experience, when I've been in different areas of ministry, different gifts have come to the front. And I guess you could just say that's coincidence or whatever, but I, I tend to think it's no. It's the, Spirit, it's the Spirit's church, and the Spirit is empowering us, and the Spirit is going to equip what the Spirit wants to get done. Um, and it's not my call. It's the Spirit's call. It's not our call, it's the Spirit's call, because it's the Spirit that makes us the church. And it's not until we are, we are living in the Spirit and saying yes to what the Spirit wants to do in us and in our church that we, I think we really fully identify these things. Um, so yeah, I, I certainly think that we should be attentive to the possibility that, especially in major life transitions or something like that, that, that you know, we may need to take a step back and, and reevaluate. Uh, the last thing I would say about all of this and this is something Paul says pretty explicitly, is that if you're not using your gifts, then you're hurting not only yourself, but you're also hurting your church. Your church needs your gifts. uh, That would be sort of like a hand. You wake up one day. Well, we've all probably woken up on our hand, and it's asleep, right? And you can't use it. You go to scratch your face, and you slap yourself in the face, and it hurts. And you're like only half awake, so you just have no idea what's going on, right? I mean, that's, that's sort of what it's like when you don't use your spiritual gifts. I guess. Uh, so, but, you know, we've all had this, we've all had this sense of when our bodies don't do what they're supposed to do. And, and that's, according to Paul, what it's like when we don't use our spiritual gifts. When we say, I'm not important, I don't matter, someone else can do it better than I can, what, fill in the excuse, right? But when we don't, when we don't do what, we're, what the Spirit has gifted and equipped and called us to do, then we are, we are hurting ourselves, right? We're not growing, we're not participating with Jesus in the way that he's calling us to, but we're also hurting our church family because that means there's something that is not getting done or someone else who's stretched too thin to compensate for that lack or something, right? So, so that's, that's important. Okay, so what is the church? The church is God's people, which are constituted by God's Torah, God's way, which is Jesus, and God's spirit. And our mission is to live in God's world on God's terms. Right? That's what we are called to do. We are a picture of the new humanity. I mean, again, the, the language of we are the body of Christ couldn't really be a lot stronger. Where is Jesus' body? It's here. It's us. When people look at us, they're supposed to see Jesus. So we, we are that image of God that God originally intended, that God has now brought to fruition in the church. That's what it means to say that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that we are the body of Christ. We show the world who the Trinity is, both by how we worship God and by how we love each other. Right? Those are the, again, which goes back to Jesus. The greatest commandment is loving God and loving people. Okay, so that's the church. Questions? Comments? Thoughts? All right.
Figured someone would ask about tongues, but that's all right. If you didn't, we'll just keep moving on. Uh, (laughs) um, Then let's talk about the end, which is all the way down there. I didn't actually plan the drawing very well, so I was going to do more down there. Okay, now, what, what, what is really important to see is that what we've been doing all along is that there are, at this point where we are, there are two realities that coexist. One is the old world, what Paul called in Adam, right? The broken, fallen creation. And one is the new creation, what Paul calls in Christ or in Jesus, that is, has begun at his death and resurrection and is now moving forward, okay? We are between those two things. This was the beginning, the, the, the cross and the tomb were the beginning of the end of the old world, and it was the beginning of the beginning of the new world. So what we're going to talk about now is the end of the end of the old world and the end of the beginning of the new world. Or if you want to put it in other terms, right, we're going to get to day seven of the new creation, the Sabbath day, the day of rest, the day when when God looks, steps back and says everything is very good, everything is the way I created it to be, and now we can get down to the serious business of living in the world together. Make sense? That's that's what we're talking about when we talk about the end. Now, there are, I don't know, a bajillion, gajillion end times scenarios. And if you've been around the church for very long, you've heard terms thrown around like rapture, tribulation, millennialism, premillennialism, amillennialism, post-tribulation, pre-tribulation, like, you know, there's a bajillion, like I said, a bajillion of them. The Church of the Nazarene does not take a stand on which one we uh, officially endorse. If you believe that at the end of all things, Jesus comes back to earth, that's basically it. You can, you can throw anything you want in here. I think you could technically include an alien invasion or something like that, probably. Mm-hmm. I need to check with our district superintendent about that. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but as long as you believe that at the end, where the big black line is, Jesus bodily comes back to earth, then we're okay. And so, again, there's a lot of those end-time scenarios fall inside of that. And this is something our church has done on purpose. There have been lots of groups that have joined the Church of the Nazarene that have petitioned strongly for us to take a particular stand on one of these things. And the church has explicitly said, no, because we don't think that the scriptures are clear. We see a lot of different Christians who are faithful and intelligent and have studied a lot of this stuff come to a lot of different conclusions. And so we've said, you know what? If you just believe Jesus is coming back, that's good enough for us. And so we've actively resisted taking a stand. Now, I have some particular beliefs. Some of our different teachers and staff and stuff here have particular beliefs, and that's fine. They don't, we don't all agree on it. And I actually think that's pretty cool. Uh, there are entire denominations that have been created over splitting over this kind of a thing. And I think that that's too bad. Uh, if you want to debate end times kinds of stuff, cool, I'll do it with you. I've read a lot of the books and done a lot of the studies. I teach a class on Revelation occasionally. Um, so I love it. But when it comes to talking about theology and basic theology, introduction to theology, theology that we all can use, we're not going to talk about that stuff because it gets in the way. So what we're going to talk about is the things that the scriptures are clear about. Uh, And the biggest one of those is that Jesus is coming back. 
so this is something that actually, even going back into the Old Testament, the prophets of, in Israel were looking forward to. If you go read some of the prophets, they will talk about this thing called the Day of the Lord. Okay, And again, they're kind of fuzzy on it, except that God's, it's, it's when God comes back and finally puts everything right. Evil is vanquished. Uh, Israel's true kingdom is restored and God puts creation back the way it was. This is where like Isaiah talks about the lion laying down with the lamb and the spears being beaten to plowshares and all that kind of, all that, all of that language that you've probably heard. Uh, I think it's even in an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie or two. Like it's all, this, that's where it all comes from. Is this, this looking forward to the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. Uh, now, a really important aspect of this is the future resurrection of everyone. So, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone died because we all belonged in Adam, right, the old world, Everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. But there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. So that's, again, when we say that the resurrection was the beginning of the beginning, that's what Paul's saying here, right? Christ was the first of the resurrection, the first of this new world. Then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. That's on the day of the Lord. After that, the end will come when he will turn the kingdom over to God the Father, having destroyed every ruler and authority and power. For Christ must reign until he humbles all of his enemies beneath his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So what is clear is that God will come to earth, that every enemy will be defeated, and everyone will be resurrected for a final judgment. And so the question that all of this begs is when the end comes, where will you be? Will you be in life or in death? Will you be in Christ or in Adam? Uh, and this is what, okay, so uh, I don't remember which week it was. Uh, several weeks ago, we had that kind of that, that question come up about, well, like, what about all the people who die now? You know, what about all the people, like, let's say, let's say I, let's say I go home and I'm on my way home and get killed in a car accident and I'm dead. That's sort of morbid, but, you know, just for the, I just want to pick on me rather than any of you. Uh, so I, I die and Jesus doesn't come back until 2015. Or, I don't know, 2055 or whatever. Uh, what, what happens to me, right? And there's a, there's a few different ideas about this, right? The idea that maybe, I, maybe my, while my body is in the grave, my spirit goes up into some kind of a temporary, like, heavenly kind of a thing, and I'm just like a disembodied spirit. Maybe I'm just, like, uh, asleep. Maybe it's like, you know, like when you sleep and you wake up and next thing you know it's morning. Uh, maybe it's like that. And there's a bunch of different scriptures that kind of imply all of these different things. You know, there's, there's some speculation about, you know, when Jesus says to the, one of the thieves on the cross in Luke, today you will be with me in paradise, right? Some people are like, well, is paradise the same thing as heaven? Or is that like a, another place? You know, like there's, there's all, I'm telling you, again, lots of speculation. But what's clear is that whatever happens in between here, at the end, everyone will be raised. And the dead will be all of the dead, right? And all of the living and will all be assembled and there'll be this big judgment. And the judgment is to determine which of these were you. Were you in Christ or were you in Adam? Were you in life or were you in death? Because after this point, there's no going back. Right? This is, this is when God finally says, no more. No more evil, no more injustice, no more oppression, no more evil. 
Like, there isn't any more. I will not continue to allow this. From this point forward, this is the end of the old broken creation. And all things are made new. And so those who have chosen to be in Adam will pass into death. And there are, again, lots of different metaphors. You know, uh, Revelation describes it as a lake of fire. Uh, Jesus describes it as like a big trash dump that's constantly burning. And there's you know, gnashing of teeth and things like that. There's, but, but what matters is that it's bad. It's death. It's life without God. Right? And then, and then those who chose to be in Christ will be in life. And this is particularly, I mean, it sounds nice for us. We're like, okay, yeah, good. But, you know, we're getting ready for this big prayer vigil on Sunday night for the persecuted church. And this, this is particularly meaningful for those whose choice to follow Jesus now doesn't feel much like life. And a lot of the early Christians felt this too, right? They, Jesus kept saying, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. But then everywhere they looked, it sure didn't look like Jesus' way was life. They suffered for it economically, physically, financially, right? I mean, they, they did. It cost them a lot more than it cost me, at least, right? So for me, it's like, it's pretty easy for me. Like, yeah, Jesus, way of life. I mean, I'm a pastor of a sweet church. I love my congregation. Like, have a lot of fun at my job. Like, woo, you know? But there are a lot of people that can't say that throughout history that haven't been able to say that. And so for me, the promise of resurrection is great. Like, I'm, I'm excited about it. But particularly for those who have been oppressed, who have felt the sting of persecution, this means a lot because it's, again, like we, like we talked about when we talked about Jesus, this is God's final determination that sin and suffering and brokenness and death will not have the final word. No matter how badly you suffer in this life, there is coming a point when all of that will end and God will, if it takes, God will raise you from the dead to give you life, if that's what it takes. Right? If you choose Christ and if you stay faithful to the way of Christ, this is your destiny. Life. Does that make sense? Good. Uh, so, I should have read Revelation 20. Okay, here we go. So this, again, John is having a, a spectacular vision of the end of all things. And he says, I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it, which is God. And the earth and the sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. And books were opened, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead, and death and the grave gave up their dead. And all were judged according to their deeds. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So there again, you get those, some going into death, some going into life. We're getting into Revelation's vision of life here in a minute. But um, again, there's, there's, all ki- there's, all kinds of, there's all kinds of debate about, you know, is hell like this or is it like that? And, uh, and to me, I always get caught up on like, I don't, it's like, it's bad. Or you don't want to be there. I think that's the bottom line. Like it's death. I, again, I, from an academic perspective, I'm interested in all of those conversations, and we can have them, and I like reading the books about them and stuff like that. But to me, at the end of the day, it, like, it's death and life. And I don't need at least very much convincing that death is bad, life is good. Like, that's, that's pretty easy for me. And so I, when people want to make a big stink about exactly what I think hell's going to be like, I'm like, I don't know. I don't plan on being there. Good enough for me. Uh, and I don't want you to be there either. So good enough for you? Like, is that good enough for you? I don't know. Uh, if you're particularly passionate about figuring out exactly what hell's going to look like, we can find, read some books together and discuss it. But 
particularly for our purposes here, what's at stake is life and death. What's at stake is life with God or life without God. And again, particularly from a Wesleyan perspective, leaning on free will, what we understand is happening in the judgment and why we're talking about these books being opened and people being judged according to their deeds and things like that is not salvation that's based on works. Right? Not, well, this person, this person almost made it in, but they had one too many bad things on their resume. It's that in the end, God gives us what we want. If we have lived a life that is saying, consistently saying no to God, consistently saying, I don't want your world on your terms, in the end, God says, okay, have it your way. And, and there, that's what, to me, is very fascinating about this hard, this line that we have here, the end. Because what, we believe in something called provenient grace or common grace. And what that means is that even people who are living in a state of rebellion against God are experiencing God's goodness in their life. Right? When, when they breathe, when they hear beautiful music, when they see a gorgeous sunset, when they, when they have children, when they love someone they're experiencing the presence of the Holy Trinity in their lives, whether they choose to acknowledge that or not. And even when they say, no, I don't want it, 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 every time they taste and see food is good, they're tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, whether, whether they'll acknowledge it or not. But there will come a point when God finally says, you know, we're done. We're done. No more. And if they have chosen to reject God, over and over and over and over and over, which you'll be able to see from their deeds, right? If they've consistently said no to God, God will say, okay, here's what you wanted. You've never had it before. You've never had a life without me in it. You've never had a life apart from me. You've always, always, always existed because of my grace. But here you go. Death. There's no better word for it. And then everyone who has said yes to God will have life. And there's no better word for that. And that's the end. Yeah, Sonny. Um, uh, this word, deeds, it's always kind of uh, thrown me off because, you know, I always felt that it was a grace, God's yeah. grace that we have life. Uh, but this deed makes you feel like it's your work. Really. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. So the question is, okay, it seems, it seems in this passage that it's a workspace kind of a thing, that we will be judged according to our deeds. Um, this is maybe a silly example, and if it doesn't work for you, I'll figure out something else. But if I told you that I was a mechanic, you might believe me. If you followed me around for a week, you would begin to have some serious doubts. <laughs> if you ever saw me approach a car, you would know in the bottom of your heart that I am definitely not a mechanic. Right? So the idea is we can say whatever we want. And, and for some reason, we, we, we got it in our heads at some point that what really, all that really matters about being a Christian is believing a, the right set of, like it's like a checklist of, do you believe Jesus, Son of God? Yes. Do you believe you're a sinner? Yes. Do you believe you died? You know, all of these things that are true things, but as long as you just like give verbal or mental assent to these ideas, then you're, then you're a Christian. Which would be the same kind of thing like, do you believe cars break down? Sure I do. Do you believe that they should be fixed? Yeah, I do. Then you're a mechanic. Like, well, no. There's actually a lot more that goes into it than that. And the scriptures do not make a distinction between what you believe and what you do. In fact, in some ways, particularly you see this in Matthew 25 in the parable of the sheep and the goats or in the book of James. The scriptures say if you watch what someone does, you can tell what they really believe. 
right? And so it's, it's not that, it's not that you're earning your salvation. It's not that, again, it's not like God has a quota of good deeds and it has to be X many number of good deeds higher than bad deeds that you did or something like that. It's does your life show that you are living in the resurrection of Christ? You know, are you saying yes to the spirit? Are you making room, you know, and it's not like it's 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 never about earning. It's never about like you said, it's always about every, all, all of this is because it is a free. Our salvation is a free gift from God. God rescues us from sin and death, not because of anything we have done, not because of any way that we earn it. But the reality is you can say all you want that you believe in God. But to quote James, good job. Satan believes in God. So what? You know, that's 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 empty. Yes. And, yeah, sir. I'm just, I mean, I guess I kind of, I think, I don't know, I'm just going to ask it. Okay. So, like, you always hear the stories of, you know, people that have gotten the, you know, through the Holy Week to live or mm-hmm. whatever, and then they had this conversion. Uh-huh. Yeah, deathbed conversion kind of a thing. Yeah, so like where does that fit in? To I don't, again, because there is no, there's no, um, there's no quota. It's not like, oh right. man, if you had just accepted Jesus two weeks earlier, you would have had enough time to squeeze in yeah. all the, all the stuff you needed to do. I think it goes back to your vineyard thing yeah. we talked about. Where yeah. Whether you came in at six o'clock in the morning or five o'clock in the afternoon, yeah. right. you were still given yeah. the opportunity. Yeah. The main purpose wasn't how long you were, it was what you did within your heart. Yeah. Yep. And again, we're so geared in our society, in our workplace, and our everything's by how hard you work and how long you work. And I just believe we put such a wrong yeah. attitude about that. Where with God, He just cares. Do you love Him? Mm-hmm. It doesn't make any difference if you love Him for twenty years. I question whether someone just when they know they're dead going to die is are there, is their motivation love or is their motivation fear? Fear. Yeah. And deal with. Right. And I don't think that's for us to right. do. Yeah. I don't want to live there, though. Right. And I don't want people to believe that you can wait to the last day because you and I all know people who didn't have a chance. They died mm-hmm. of a heart attack, mm-hmm. didn't have a week. Mm-hmm. And so, but we don't have that judgment. And that's why everybody we've buried, I've buried in 39 years has all gone to heaven. But my, <laughs> my point is, I don't know. Yeah. And it isn't me to know. Yep. Need to live. Yep. And I think that's what, and to answer her question, just to kind of, yeah. And, and because of these phrases that are in the church, we do good deeds not to get salvation, but as a result of our salvation, yep. we want to do everything we can for Him. Yeah. Not because He's judging in how much hours I put in right. Him. Yep. But out of my heart for Him, He looks at that as my deeds. Right. The love deeds of yep. my response, like giving, like we said, some bold generosity, giving to him, not because he requires it of me, but it's a response yep. of me to him because of what he's done. Right. Yeah, and when you turn it when you turn it into a rule, 
You miss the whole point. And, it, and again, there's a reason marriage gets used so often because it's a great metaphor and it's one of the scriptures used for our relationship with God. No one wants to be in a marriage where someone does five nice things for you every day because they feel like they have to. And at the end of the day, they're like, I did all five. Did you notice? Did you notice? You know, that, that, that's terrible. You would not feel loved by that, right? Um, we love it when our spouses do things for us out of their love for us, not in order to earn our love or to prove their love or something like that, right? And, and it's the same kind of thing with God. What we're talking about by opening these books and looking at our deeds is not, you know, again, some kind of a formula that St. That Peter has at the, at the gate saying like, well, uh, you made it, yay, or oh, sorry, you didn't, you know, but it's, it, it, is, it is showing, it is showing which of these realities we're living in, showing which of them we're, we're a part of. And I think sometimes we try to distinguish too much. And people living in death, let's, yeah. let's just take that one. People living in death may do wonderful deeds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Obviously, there's a lot of people that are yeah. doing good things for social purposes or for the homeless, and they have lots of money there, but they're in debt. And so sometimes, boy, they must be spiritual to do it. No, it depends mm -hmm. on motivation. Yeah. Yeah. I almost feel sorry for those people that make that end of life decision because they've missed out on so many blessings in a lifetime mm -hmm. of loving mm -hmm. God. And that's, that is, I think, the, I think that's such an important point. You know, our, what, we're not, we're not living just for this or for this past the line, Right. But we're understanding that we can be living in death now, or we can be living in life now. And isn't it a shame? Isn't it a shame to wait? You know, again, not not uh, not out of fear or condemnation or guilt, but out of a desire for life. Like and people may pray, "Why did I wait so long?" Yeah, yeah, Why have I yeah. Uh, of course, the good thing is, once you're in, yay, you did it. <laughs> like, yes. Uh, it's, it's always something to celebrate. Um, so, okay. Good? Is that it? Sunny, did I get to question? Sarah, are you good with your question? Okay. Um, so I wanted, what I want to do in our last few minutes together is I want to read the end of the beginning with you. Revelation 21 and 22. Uh, I cut out a couple of little pieces. You can go back and read the whole thing later. But there are, there are several... There are several aspects of, of John's final vision of the end of the beginning and of the inauguration of the new creation uh, after death and evil and everything are gone that I want to call your attention to specifically for this reason. Because remember that what we're saying is that there is not a, there is not a whole disconnect between life then and life now. But that eternal life begins now. That the Holy Spirit, remember, is a sneak preview of this, and that the, the, the church can be a preview of the new humanity. So as we read this vision of the end, I want to reflect with you on what's going to be true then and how that can begin to be true now. If, if we are the new humanity, if we are experiencing the resurrection of Jesus in our lives now, right? if the Holy Spirit is a sneak preview of what is to come, then can we talk about that in some real concrete terms? Okay, so if that's confusing, hopefully it won't be in a moment. So, John says, then, after, after everything, after sin and death and the lake of fire and all of that, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, 
For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. So the first thing I want to pause here before we go too far and point out that this is a very physical end, right? This is not a disembodied, we float up and get angel wings and harps and all of that, but this is, this is a new, restored, we could even use the term resurrected creation, right? And heaven is coming down out of heaven to earth. And where we're getting is not some, something up there somewhere, we are getting a new creation, which should not surprise us, because that's what we began with. We began with a physical world filled with physical people living as God's images in that world. And now at the end, we're seeing that's exactly what the end is. God is getting things back the way God wanted them in the first place. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people, right? On earth, now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All of these things are gone forever. And then the one on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said it is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega. We would say the A and the Z. The beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. And all who are victorious will inherit all these blessings. And I will be their God and they will be my children. Getting back to that idea of the father and the house, right? That we're all God's children living in God's house. But cowards, unbelievers, the corrupt Murderers, the immoral, those who practice witchcraft, idol worshipers, and all the liars. Their fate is in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who had held the seven bowls containing the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come with me and I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. The lamb, of course, being Jesus, the bride being his church, which is us. So he took me in the spirit to a great high mountain and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and sparkled like a precious stone, like jasper, as clear as crystal. And then he goes on to describe the city for a while, the, the ellipses that I deleted as like all the gates and the walls and all the... You know, and then he says, I saw no temple in the city. Why not? Because they don't need a temple anymore. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. This is the restored creation where the whole thing is a cosmic temple, right? And God is living in it, so they don't need, they don't need a temporary stopgap. They don't need some place to go find God that's safe because now God and humanity are all living together. Things are back the way that we wanted them in the beginning. And the city has no need of sun or moon, for the glory of God illuminates the city and the Lamb is its light. The nations will walk in its light, and the kings of the world will enter the city in all their glory. Its gates will never be closed at the end of the day, because there is no night there. And all the nations will bring their glory and honor into the city. Nothing evil will be allowed to enter, nor anyone who practices shameful idolatry and dishonesty, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing down uh, the center of the main street. 
On each side of the river grew the tree of life, which we have not seen since Genesis chapter 3. Bearing twelve crops of fruit with a fresh crop each month, the leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations. No longer will there be a curse on anything. If you remember in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, God said, the ground is cursed because of you. And in Romans 8, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago, Paul said, all creation is groaning to be redeemed from its cursed nature. Right? And so now, in this new creation, in this restored heaven and earth, not only do we have access to the tree of life again, but the curse is gone. Everything has been recreated. All things have been made new. For the throne of God and the Lamb will be there, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face. And his name will be written on their foreheads, and there will be no night there, no need for lamps or the sun, for the Lord God will shine on them, and they will reign forever and ever. Now, that's awesome. I was going to say but. It's awesome, and it is not just something that we wait for. The end has already begun because we're living in the beginning of the new creation week. And so I found it in my own life provocative to explore this vision and to ask what parts of it ought to be true of the church now as they will be true of the church in the end. For instance, it says, and this is, you might have to do a little bit of work on this, right? But it's, it, it keeps saying there's no night, there's no night, there's no night. And because there's no night, the gates of the city will never be closed. Now, we don't have walled gates anymore, right, of our cities. But in the ancient world... The night was particularly dangerous because people could sneak up and attack you, right? And so they built walls around their cities, and the walls had gates in them so people could get in and out. And at night, they shut and locked the gates so that people could not get in and out of the city. And in John, so, so again, this is a big metaphor, right? John is saying, look, in the end, we won't need to worry about that. There will be no night. The gates will never need to be closed. People will always be able to come and go freely. There's a, there's a sense of safety and security and trust in God for protection that ought to be true of the church now, right? This ought to always be a place that people can come into, a place where people can always come and encounter God. Um, it talks about uh, the, the nations of the world, right, bringing their riches to the city. That should be the church now. We ought to be a worldwide universal church, not something that's bound by ethnicity or culture, Right? But, and, and again, this is one of the things that's cool about the church in the Nazarene is we're all over the place. And uh, we just had our general assembly. Once every four years, our denomination brings people from all over, the, uh, Nazarenes from all over the world together for like one big, huge worship extravaganza for a week. We just had that this past year. I got to, I got to go the first time. It's the first time we had one that I was a Nazarene. And so I got to go, and uh, it was pretty cool. It was pretty awesome to be walking through the halls of the convention. And it was in Indianapolis, so there's still mostly white American people there. But uh, there, were, there were a good number of people from other countries around the world, and you could still walk down the halls and hear all kinds of different languages being spoken. And, you know, the signage was in several different languages, and we would sing some of the worship songs. They were sometimes in other languages. And it was, it was just a really neat picture, a foretaste, a preview of what will be, right, when God is the God of the world again. When God takes back everything, when God says the end. And so these things can begin to guide us into who the church ought to be now and how we can be now. Because there's, it's, not like, it's not like when the end happens, there's going to be a big switch flipped and all of a sudden we're going to get our brains rewired and all this, like, right? I mean, 
we're either living in life now or we're living in death now. And if we're living in life now, that is continuing into, this is the, this is the beginning of the beginning, and, and we will continue in the new creation. So I don't know what it's going to look like. No one knows what it's going to look like. Some people have said they figured it out. Maybe they did, I guess. But Yeah, right? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Streets of gold and a crystal sea, except there will be no sea. I don't know, something. Uh, There's where you jump beyond the bounds of um, what the scriptures explain. It says there will be no sin. Now, we'll still have free will. So, I know, right? Yeah, just sitting outside the gates or something like that. Yeah. Here, here's, here's, my, here's my kind of take on that sort of a question. Is uh, and, and the word the word that theologians use for, for this big old line is glorification. So there's kind of some stages. There's the, the initial kind of justification where our relationship with God is restored and made right. Then there's the sanctification where is that that where we are becoming like God, we're getting holy like God is holy. And then the final step is glorification, which is that where we get resurrection bodies, we get all the, and all this happens. And so there's some kind of a speculation about in that in that process of glorification where our our wills are perfected and all of this kind of stuff, we will be free. Um, and again, like the whole thing is like past this line, there is no sin. So um, will we be able to choose sin? I, maybe, I guess. Yeah. When could Christ have chosen sin? Right. There's a whole other theological sticky conundrum, right? Uh, so. I would say there will be no sin, so maybe, I don't know. I don't know how that works. Yeah. Yeah, right. And he, can, and he can stop it. Right. He gave us the free will, hoping that we would love him and not respond, but we didn't do well there. Yeah. Right. We don't know. And there's tons of speculation about this. Um, and well, and, and recently in evangelical circles, some of you have even probably heard the, you know, well, after this, you know, if people are in hell, can they repent or not? And, you know, is that, and it caused all kinds of hubbub hubbub on the internet and stuff like that. It's, it's all of these kinds of things. They, they go past what the scriptures are clear about. Right? So that's why, that's, why that's why there's so much confusion about it. Again, for me, what it comes down to is, well, what, what, what we are clear about is our responsibility while we're here, and it's to choose life, not to, to say no to death, to say yes to God. Um, and that's, that's clear enough for me. So, uh, Okay, next week, again, no class, but then the week after that, we're doing our wrap-up where we do our theological family tree, and some of the contemporary theological issues. Uh, hopefully it will make all of this stuff matter. We'll do the so what about, well, we talked about all this stuff for eight weeks, so who cares? Yeah, Nick? What about speaking in tongues? What about speaking in tongues? Okay. Um, here's, my, here's my quick tongues stuff. So there's, in the scriptures, there are two clearly different manifestation, manifestations of the Spirit that are labeled tongues, and the same Greek word is used um, but uh, one of them is what we saw at Pentecost, which is, you know, I speak English and you guys are from 10 other different countries and I'm talking my language, but you're hearing your language. And so the languages, it's the gift of languages, we might say for clarity. Then there's the other thing which we read through in Corinthians tonight, which is, it's, it's called speaking in unknown languages. And that's about as clear as Paul describes it. Uh, and that seems to have been that the spirit would come out of someone and they would speak in some not it wasn't like wasn't like you know Chinese or 
German or a known language. It was an unknown language. And then there would be another person in the church who was gifted to interpret that, and it was like a special message from the Spirit that was distinct from the prophetic messages that the prophets would have. Um, I'll probably get in trouble with some Pentecostals here, but hey, we're Nazarene, we're not Pentecostals, so uh, I have been in some I've been in some worship gatherings where people have been practicing what seems to me to be a third distinct manifestation of, of the Spirit, which is just a what they call a private prayer language, right, where someone will just kind of speak in a a language that is unknown, but there's no interpretation going on, and it's not done in a. It's not done for anyone else. It's not done for the edification of the larger body. It's just like a thing that happens when they're feeling particularly spiritual, uh, and so that's. I, now I don't particularly have a big theological problem with that because, like as I said earlier, I don't think that the list of gifts in the. I don't think the list of is, is exhaustive, and so if the Spirit wants to have someone do that. Well, it doesn't have to ask my permission. Um, there's also things like in the revival period, you'd hear things like holy barking or holy laughing where people would be at a revival and they'd be so overcome by the spirit, they'd bark. And again, I'm like, okay, uh, that's super weird. And it's never happened to me. But like, I'm not going to say the spirit doesn't do that because that tends to be when the spirit does stuff. Is, you know, it's like, you know, God doesn't ever ask me for permission to do anything. And so I'm not going to put myself on a high enough horse to start saying what God is or is not doing. I'm skeptical of some of those things. I will, I'll admit that. And I'm not a part of a denomination that practices those on a regular basis. Um, but I've, I've also been in circles where people were all praying in tongues together. And I was like, oh, I never heard this before. Okay. You know, uh, and so... Now, now, there are some people who would say things like those kind of expressions of tongues, you know, they're not explicitly described in the scriptures and therefore they're bad and you shouldn't do them. And I've, I'll just say again, I've never been in a situation where I saw that that really just completely devastated someone's. Now, I've also say that I've also been in a conversation with a Pentecostal person who has said, oh, well, you're not a real Christian like you don't speak in tongues. Like if, if you were fully experiencing life with God, you, you would be able to speak in tongues. And I'm like. I mean, I can fake it pretty well. Probably you wouldn't be able to tell. Um, you know, so I don't think that's true either. You know, I don't think that I obviously, because, again, that's not our denominational leaning. So, um, well, I mean, it causes schism. It, Some people completely yeah, disagree with yeah, others. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and again, I'm, I'm a person who would say, look, if it's super important to you, eh, sorry, I guess you're probably going to kick me out of your church. Like, it's not important to me. I don't, you know, I've... I've been in, con and again, what, what, what I would go back to is if this is a gift of the Spirit, we need to look at how Paul tells us to use our gifts, and it's always about promoting order and edifying the body. And I've been in lots of situations where the way that gift has been practiced is not edifying, and it's creating disorder, not order. And so I would say there, from like that scriptural rule, like the, the, what, the particular time that this gift, you manifested the gift, was not done well. Uh, but we see from the scriptures that when you have a gift from the Spirit, you can use it badly. And that's why Paul says, be careful how you use your Spirit. Like, you know, that, and again, it's, that's in church. So, so I, have the, I have a gift of teaching, okay? It is possible for me to teach in a way that's bad. And so it's actually, it's actually your job as my congregation to test my teaching. That's what the scriptures say, right? Test it. Determine whether it's from God or not. And if it's not, well, there's church discipline procedures, right? Hopefully you would just come to me one-on-one -on -one and say, like, hey, I have some questions about this, you know, and, and I, would be I would be receptive to that because I love you and I know that you love me and we're in a, you know, we're in a healthy Trinity modeling relationship, right? And we would, we would move forward with that. But, but it's, not, it's not 
Uh, it's your job to test my gifts and how I use them to try to edify you and vice versa. And so uh, the, get those, all of those three kinds of tongues should fall under that as well. So, again. That's actually the only reason why all of us are here. We're just here to test you. You're waiting. Yeah, good. I love it. <laughs> Perfect. Okay, uh, we ran a little over. Let me pray for you. And then, again, if you want to stick around and talk about tongues some more, we can do that. God, thank you so much for uh, this opportunity we've had to gather and to talk about what it means that you have called us together to be your church that we are the people who stand on that confession, that you are the Messiah, you're the Son of God, that you have come to rescue us and bring us into life. Uh, Thank you for rescuing us from death, not just when we die or not just when the end comes, but now that we experience your resurrection, that we have the sneak preview of the Holy Spirit working and active in our lives and building us into your kingdom. We ask that as we go from here, you would help us to walk in the power of your new creation and that we would continue to be a faithful picture of Jesus here in Beaver Creek, Ohio, because that is what you've called us to be. And we pray all of these things in his name. All right. Thanks, everyone. Uh, Again, no class next week. We'll be back in two weeks for one more super fun wrap up. I'll try to get some pyrotechnics or something. Um, Probably not going to happen. I wouldn't hold your breath on that. Okay.